0: Let's get right into it tonight, if you'd open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and that's where we left off in our Wednesday night study. Um, and as I mentioned, we're going to talk tonight about what Peter's going to teach us on, and that's having a prophetic world view. And you know, we often hear messages from the pulpit that encourage a believer to develop what we would call a Christian Worldview, a Christian worldview, and that's a good thing. We should do that, and we should certainly have that, but I think sometimes we have to ask, what does that really mean? What does it mean to have a Christian worldview, or what does it mean to have a worldview at all? Well, I looked this up in the Oxford Learner's Dictionary, and it defines it this way. A worldview is the fundamental cognitive orientation of an individual or society encompassing the whole of the individual or society's knowledge and point of view. A worldview can include natural philosophy, fundamental, existential, and normative postulates or themes, values, and emotions, and ethics. Whoa, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Hey, can we try to make it a little more simple than that? Because I'm a simple guy. And, and I think a simple way to describe a worldview is that we, we have a filter in which we can sift through information and come to conclusions. And it means that we have a knowledge of truth that we hold, that we're certain about. And because of that certainty, we can evaluate and make conclusions about other information that we take in. And we do that to see if we think that other information is accurate or not and how we should act upon that information. So as believers, we're gonna evaluate the information that we get based upon what we know for sure is true. And we can look at the world and have a viewpoint about what is happening in that world. And of course, we do this according to our knowledge of God's word and what it says, but what it says about God, his nature, and his characteristics, plus what it says about man and his nature and his characteristics, and even what it tells us about this world system that we live in. And I would submit to you that as believers, we have a great advantage in understanding what goes on in this world. You know, when we see tragedies happen, as we saw in Florida, you know, it's difficult to make any sense of it. But as a Christian, understanding that we live in a fallen world a world system that's influenced by Satan himself, we are not, or at least should not be, caught off guard. We know from, Psalm, or from 1 Peter 5.8 that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And because we know that, Peter says, we should be sober of spirit. So you see, the worldview that we have as a Christian can really help us be prepared for the evil that takes place in our world. So your next question might be, okay, then why can't we just have a Christian worldview and leave it at that? Why do we specifically need a prophetic worldview? Well, I have one really, really, really good reason. The Bible tells us to. Isn't that a good reason? And guess what? The Bible itself is a prophetic book. It's full of prophecy that's already been fulfilled, but it's also full of prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. So did you know that next to the subject of faith, that the the return of Christ, the second coming, is the most discussed topic in the Bible? Did you know that? Some scholars would say that it's spoken about or alluded to 1,845 times. Wow. Now, I'd like to say that I took the time this week to personally count each one and make sure that was accurate, but I didn't do that. I'm gonna take their word for it. But if that's accurate, and I think that it is, that would mean that one out of every 30 verses in the Bible has to do with end times or second coming. I heard Skip Heitzig say, that means when you do your devotions, read at least 30 verses so you get one of those. (laughs) It doesn't actually work that way, but over the long haul, it does. And that means that one-fifth of the Bible deals with end times or the second coming. Jesus himself referred to his second coming at least 21 times. And I could go on and on and give you lots more statistics to show how full of prophecy this Bible is, but I think you get the picture. So then you might ask well, isn't a prophetic worldview really just a part of a Christian worldview? And the answer is it should be. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. In fact, there's a great amount of the church today, as I mentioned on Sunday, there's a great amount of the church today that really ignores prophecy altogether. They don't even deal with it. They don't touch on it. There's another part of the church that though they might not ignore prophecy, they, they put a spin on it. And that spin gets it to the point where, where they consider much of prophecy to not be literal but to be figurative. They see it as allegorical. They do not believe in a literal rapture, a literal tribulation period, or a millennial kingdom. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. If the prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah were to be taken literally, why would the prophecies of the second coming of the Messiah not be literal? Does that make much sense to you? It doesn't to me. And that view actually leads them to a a place where they end up denying that the promises that God made to Israel stand, that they will be for Israel. And that lack of prophetic worldview, it must have been prevalent at the time that Peter wrote this letter as well because he certainly feels the need to speak on this particular subject. Remember the epistle that we're reading right now, the second epistle of Peter, was written about 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So it really didn't take long for for the church to get off track. So let's take a look at what Peter's gonna teach us on this subject. So look at 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And that's exactly what I hope to do for you tonight and for anyone who listens to this message on the radio or online. I want the words of the Apostle Peter to stir up your sincere mind. And I believe you have a sincere mind. That's why you're here tonight. Uh, Some of the translations say pure mind, but... You know, I'm not sure if that was a great translation. I'm not sure we can all say we have pure minds, but I do think we have sincere minds, ones that really want to know what God has to say. And so these ones are directed to stir up your sincere mind to what God wants you to be reminded of. And again, these are these are not going to be new concepts, but they're so important that Peter said at the very beginning of the letter, if you remember back in chapter 1 verse 3, he said that I need to remind you of these things. And Pastor Michael has been emphasizing throughout this letter that we need to be reminded of the things Peter is saying to us. So verse two, he says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I think that's interesting. He says by your apostles. He makes it very personal here. So if you look closely, very specifically here, Peter points out two things that we need to remember. The first one, he says, is the prophetic words of the Old Testament prophets. See, part of having a prophetic worldview means we need to remember the prophecies spoken by the Old Testament prophets as well as the New. And then two, he says the commandment, or you could say the teaching of Jesus And he says that this teaching was being taught by the apostles, and what he means by that is those apostles who were with Jesus. But you'll note, if you go down to verse 15 and 16, you will note, and this is an important point here, you'll note that Peter includes Paul. Now, Paul was not one of the original 12, was he? But Paul spent time with Jesus. When you read his writings and he tells you what he went through, he spent time with Jesus, and Peter acknowledges that, yes, Paul is one of those same apostles and that you are to listen to him as well. And I think that you'll see as we go through this, I think you'll see in context here that Peter is specifically speaking about prophecy that is being taught by the apostles. And he's reminding the readers that they need to regain a prophetic worldview, view. And he's going to explain to us, as he did to them, why this is so important. So let's read on here, verse 3. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So he starts with this, Know this first. And the word for "no" here is protos, and it means an order of importance. So what Peter's saying here is in order for you to understand the rest of what I'm going to talk about here, you need to get this first. That's how important it is. And he says, you need to know that in the last days, mockers or sometimes translated scoffers will come. Interesting, the word for mockers literally means would make sport of. In other words, these people are gonna come and they're gonna make sport of this whole idea of the second coming of Christ. But let's step back here for a second. We need to define terms so that we know what we're talking about here. He says, in the last days. So what's the meaning of that term, in the last days? And I think this is extremely important for you to understand Prophecy correctly. So turn if you would to Acts 2:14, Acts 2:14. <clears throat> the believers, following the instructions of Jesus, were gathering on the day of Pentecost, and they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come and to do them with power as Jesus said that he would. And the Holy Spirit did come, and he came upon them in an amazing way. Uh, Verse four says that they were filled with the spirit and they spoke in languages then that they didn't know. Imagine if you were there and all of a sudden you spoke in some language like Italian or French, something that you didn't know. This is what took place. Those languages were known by other people who were there. People who had come from all different kinds of places and they understood these men speaking in their tongues and they went, wow, how's this happening? Those guys don't know our language. Why are we hearing them in our language? And what was being spoken of was the mighty deeds of God. And so these people heard it in their own language. A miraculous event because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter then is gonna take the time to explain exactly what happened on this day. And I'm not gonna read it all to you, but I'm just gonna read a few verses here so that you get the idea. It says in verse 14, but Peter taking his stand with the eleven raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. That's kind of what they thought was going on. For it is only the third hour of the day, too early for guys to be drunk. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so he then goes to quote Joel here in verse 17. And Joel had said this, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, so on and so forth. And you can read the rest of that for yourself. So you see here that this term last days actually started on this very day of Pentecost, not in the 1970s like a lot of people believe. A lot of people think, oh, the last days, yeah, that was the 70s, you know, the, the whole Calvary Chapel movement. No, no, no. Peter is very explicit here. He says what's happening here today on Pentecost is exactly what the prophet Joel spoke about. This is the beginning of the last days. And you know, the fact that there were already mockers at the time Peter wrote this second letter, only 30 years later, reinforces the fact that they were already in the last days. You see the thing is, we have this idea of, you know, the time frame of the last days. So far, the last days for our accounting has been about 2000 years, just just a little under. So he says the last days have begun. Now this term last days, it's really just a way to describe a time period a time period in which God works in specific ways to accomplish specific things. That's what this term is all about. And one other term that would be used to describe the same thing would be called a dispensation. How many of you have heard that word, dispensation? Not that many, and that's interesting because you guys are Bible students. Well, it would be a dispensation. And right now, it's interesting that even the term dispensation gets mocked today by some believers, especially believers in one particular movement. They mock the whole idea of dispensations. There is no such thing. Well, I beg to differ with that. The Bible certainly teaches that there are different periods of times in which God will accomplish specific things and work in specific ways. So let me ask you this, or anybody who would deny dispensations, would any Christian deny that we are today in the age of grace? Would any Christian deny that? Now you ask any Christian, are are we under the law or are we under grace? Oh, we're under grace, I like that. Yeah, it's the age of grace. Well, the age of grace means we're in a dispensation of grace. That's all it's talking about. Would any Christian deny that in the Old Testament, at times the Holy Spirit came upon people, but in today, for a Christian believer, He works differently because he doesn't just come upon people, he dwells within people, amen? So it's a different way of working in a different time period. The word age is just really a synonym for a dispensation. And if we're gonna have a prophetic worldview and not just a prophetic worldview, but one that interprets prophecy correctly, we have to understand that there are time periods in which God works in specific ways for specific reasons. Now different scholars break these dispensations or time periods down differently and I had a real long one here from gotquestions.org and they broke it into seven different dispensations or time periods or ages. I'm gonna give you my take on it, not that it's any better, um, but it's a little bit simpler. I see it this way. I would say that the first time period, age, dispensation would be creation to the flood. And then I would say number two would be the flood to the patriarchs where you had the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And then I would say the third one is that group of patriarchs arcs to the Mosaic covenant, which was what? The law, the age of the law. And then the age of the law or the Mosaic covenant To the time of the church, which is now the age of grace, Pentecost, the last days. And then I would say the fifth one is the church, the age of grace, the age of the church, up to its removal from the earth at the day of the Lord. Now, we can disagree about some areas of when the day of the Lord begins or not, but there is a time period, the age of grace, before the church, while the church is still on earth, before it's removed, And then there's the time of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom, which some people consider the day of the Lord all the way through the millennial kingdom. Some people don't. I don't think it's that important. I really don't. But I think you can see that if you were to break those down and look, you can see that, yeah, God worked a little bit differently in each of those time periods. And Peter is saying that in this age, the age called the last days, there will be those who mock the prophecies of the return of Christ. And remember, he's been writing about false teachers throughout this letter, right? And those false teachers were not just people outside the church. Remember Pastor Michael said? They are inside the church as well. And I think he's saying the same thing right here. And I could certainly say that there are people in the church today who mock the return of Christ. What a sad statement. So what are these people saying? Well, they're paraphrasing it. They're gonna say, hey, come on. People have been saying for years and years and years that Jesus was gonna come and it hasn't happened. They've been saying it for 2,000 years and it hasn't happened. And they've been saying it a lot since the 1970s and it hasn't happened. It's not gonna happen. Why do they do this? What's their motivation? Well, Peter tells us. He says it's because they wanna follow their own lustful desires. What he's saying by that is they really don't want God getting in the way of what they want to do. And think about it. If they believe that Jesus was returning soon, and if I believe that, hey, I might wanna get ready for that. And it, It means I might have to change some of the things I do and the things I say and the way I act but they didn't want that. They wanted to follow their own lustful desires. Now in verse four, it says that these mockers make an argument and their argument is this. All continues as it has from the beginning of creation. All continues. In other words, everything remains the same, just continues on as it has from the beginning of creation. Now I find it really interesting Do you realize that that's the same argument that evolutionists use? It's their basic foundational principle. Anybody know what that's called? It's called uniformitarianism. Everything has uniformity to it. All things just remain the same. And so much of the bad information that they pour out there is because they start with this, would this be correct, Professor Joe, a presupposition? That everything remains the same from the beginning. Now, they wouldn't say from creation, but from whatever happened, their Big Bang or whatever they're thinking these days, and they would say it stays the same. Now, why do they say that? Well, because they say from observation what we've seen, we've never seen some major event that would cause things to be different. It always just continues the same. Now, that's interesting. I mean, how long have they been around? You know, we're... You know, are you 10 billion years old like you say the whole earth is or whatever it is these days? I don't know, it's 500 billion, whatever. How do you know that? And what they're really saying is that they just cannot observe this so they believe that it must have always been that way. But Peter has something to say about this in verse five. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. You see, Peter will use the creation of all things by God and the destruction of all things by the flood that God sent to disprove their position that all things continue in the same way. Now, let me explain a little bit, because it may be a little confusing there. If you go to Genesis 1-2, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Genesis 1-2. I think that'll help you to understand this. Where he says the earth was formed out of water, you might wonder about that. Well, Genesis 1-2 says this. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the what? The waters. The waters. And so I believe that's what he's speaking about here. Now, there are some people that would want to go back and uh, teach on the gap theory and all that. And there's, there's a lot to be said about that, but we don't have time for that tonight. But I think what he's talking about here is the earth was formed out of the waters as the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then he says, by water, meaning the flood, the earth as it was was destroyed and then reformed by God. Now, notice that Peter says here it escapes their notice. I think he's being a little sarcastic here. I think he's saying it's a willful ignorance. Because even then, even then, every culture had some form of a story about a worldwide epidemic flood. They knew there was a flood. They knew that there was a cataclysmic event that changed everything. The entire earth, the world did not just keep going as it was. Now, evolutionists do not like that fact. And that's why they will do and work all kinds of ways to try and destroy the idea that there was a worldwide flood. Most of them believe, oh, there was a localized flood. Okay, which locality was it at? Pick one. I think deep in their heart they know the answer to this. And and in fact, the reason they do is because even some of the things that they have said for years and years, they now are backtracking on. You see, the idea of a flood explains so many things and gives so many answers to why are things like they are today. Like why can they find a fish fossil all the way 7,000 feet on a mountaintop. The, great, the Grand Canyon is a great example. You know, for years they talked about the Colorado River is you know, the reason that we have the Grand Canyon. It formed the Grand Canyon over billions and billions and billions and billions of years. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon and looked at the Colorado River? I mean, in most places it's like what, five feet deep? Give me a break. And most evolutionists, even today, they don't believe that. They may still say it, but they don't believe it. And in fact, there is a Christian archeolo- or a geologist who has spent years down there now that um, gives classes right there so the kids can go and, and he can just point it all out to them and disprove this ridiculous theory that this happened over years and years. It doesn't matter how many years you give it, it's not gonna happen. And though we may not see right now a worldwide cataclysmic event, that changes the whole environment the way the flood did. You know, we have seen major earthquakes, hurricanes, but especially volcano eruptions that can change the entire geologic nature of an area. Anybody seen Mount St. Helens region? If you go back and you look at the pictures, and my brother lived in Portland, Oregon, uh, and uh, he, he got hammered by all the ash that came from Mount St. Helens. And, and in fact, I was actually uh, pulling into his house the second time it erupted when it wasn't so bad. And I was looking at that and going, Is there a fire over there? And he goes, Oh no. <laughs> That's not what that is. Let me tell you what that is. The entire geology of that area was completely changed by this cataclysmic event. In fact, I remember, and I, I don't have all the details right, but I, I know that there was, um, there was a Christian. A geologist who decided to play a little trick, and he took a piece of strata, and he he took it to the guys and said, "Okay, I want you to determine how old this is." And they said, "All this is billions and billions of years old." And he said, "Really, it just happened uh, six months ago at St. Helens." Okay, Um, it changed the entire geological nature of that area. So the truth is, the world does not just go on as it has from the beginning. And as we read in the Book of Revelation. There are gonna be cataclysmic events such as the world has never seen before. Verse seven, he says, he says this, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, I want you to look at this verse closely with me because it's packed full a prophetic implication here. See, Peter's explaining why one might think that things don't change, but he assures us that they have, and he will again. He's saying, you know, it looks the same because of this. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, reserved. Now, when he's talking about the heavens here, by the way, he's not talking about the abode of of God, he's talking about the atmosphere, the heaven that we see, the sky, the atmosphere. And he says the earth remains the same strictly because it's being reserved for a fiery judgment. That's why it looks the same to you. And along with that judgment comes the destruction of ungodly men. And it's interesting that this word reserved here is the same Greek word that was used for the laying up of treasures that Jesus spoke about in Matthew. Remember when he said, do not lay up treasures on earth that will just be destroyed? He said, lay treasures up in heaven. It's the same Greek word, reserve treasures in heaven, but these ungodly men, instead of storing up treasures in heaven, are storing up wrath for themselves. Romans 2.5 says it this way, he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of, righteous, of the righteous judgment of God. So we learn here that this world, the world that we live in now, and we should always remember this, is a temporary world. It's a temporary world. It will not last forever we're in a holding pattern so to speak right now it will not continue as it always has luke 21 says heaven and earth will pass away now he adds to that what won't pass away god's word he says my words will not pass away but heaven and earth will pass away And if you look down, we'll sneak a peek here. Look down at verse 10 of this chapter. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed. Think about that, the elements. Remember when you took your your, uh, chemistry class and you learned the elements? The elements, the little subatomic particles, they're gonna be destroyed. And what are they gonna be destroyed with? Intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Now we gotta look at it this way. God's prophetic word so far has been proven to be 100% accurate. Every prophecy of the first coming of the Messiah was fulfilled to the T, so we can be guaranteed that every single prophecy concerning the second coming will be 100% accurate as well. So now Peter, and I love this, now he's going to bring up another fact that escapes the notice of the scoffers. Look at verse eight. He says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. He's saying, look, the scoffers let this all escape their notice, but don't you guys, don't you let this fact escape your notice. Beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. What Peter's trying to do here is he's giving you an explanation for those who, who say, you know, the early church looked for a soon return of Jesus, but he didn't come back. Therefore, God's word is unreliable. Well, Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not true. In fact, what he's doing here, and you may not have known this, because this this verse is taken out of context a lot, and you may not have known this, but Peter is actually paraphrasing Psalm 90, verse 4. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it to you. It's Psalm 90, verse 4, and listen to the way the psalmist puts it. He says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. So Peter is actually paraphrasing that and saying, for the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And look, this is simply an expression to teach us that God is outside of time. All time is present to him. You know, God never looks at a clock and says, oh, quitting time. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that there's no clock that says quit in time for God, that he's available 24-7? All time is present time to him. This, this term, this phrase, is not to be taken literally as though one day actually equals 1,000 years. There are some people that have tried to do that. And, and I will say there is some thought of the notion of, you know there's a lot of patterns in the Bible of six and one. We talked about them on Sunday, didn't we? Six and one, six days you work, one day you rest. There's also some patterns of two plus one, and there are a lot of people that that feel strongly that you know the the thousand years we're at two thousand, maybe it's the three thousand i'm that's a waste of time. Sorry, that's a waste of time. This is a simile. It's to give us the idea that God doesn't have a time clock in the way that we think of one. But some have even used this to say this, and like I said, they take it out of context, and they've used it to diminish the idea of a literal millennial kingdom. They say, well, you know, look, a day's a thousand years, so maybe God didn't really mean a thousand years there. And others have used it to to say, well, there aren't really seven literal days of creation. Look, the Bible says a day's like a thousand years. Well, even if that was true, you're only talking about 7,000 years, not billions of years like they wanna have. Okay, and that's not true. The Bible's very specific in Genesis about days, and certainly when it comes to the millennium, if you go to Revelation 2 and look at verses one through six, you'll see that there's clear evidence. Is that two? I might have missed one. It might have been 12. Gives clear evidence of a literal thousand-year reign. Just read that, and you'll see that we're not talking about a simile here, a metaphor. It's literally a 1,000-year reign of Christ with his church, on the earth before the earth is destroyed. So what we can take away from this is the church age, this time that we live in right now, you know, in God's economy, it's been like a couple of days. So if you really wanna get somebody that says, "Ah, oh, you know, 2,000 years the church said Jesus is coming back and he's not coming back and you go, well, it really hasn't been 2,000 years, it's been a couple of days so we can wait a little longer. I think it's Okay. Now, look, we know that God has a reason and a purpose in everything he does. So Peter's going to tell us then why is it that the day of the Lord hasn't yet come? Why is it? Now, remember, we're only talking here about 30 years after after Jesus had left the earth. But he says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, God's purpose in waiting is just to give people time. Even these people who are scoffers and mockers, he's giving them time to repent, to turn to him, and to come into relationship with him. And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I'm always amazed at how God desires that everyone would come to him, even those who scoff and mock and are in disbelief. You know, I think of those who who openly mocked him during the trial and and while Jesus was on the cross, and yet his desire was for each one of them to come to repentance and to turn to him. And and of course we can look at people like that, but we have to remember we were the same. We may not have stood there and openly mocked him or spit on him like they did during that time period, but look. Our, our actions, our rebellion against him for however long it was in your life, our actions speak just as loud as those words did. But remember that he was patient with us as well. And aren't we glad that the Lord did not return before we came to repentance? Aren't we glad? Well, the last verse here, and I wasn't even gonna cover this, so Pastor Michael will probably be mad this was gonna be his verse. But we already read it, so let's go through it. Verse 10, he says, and I want you to look closely here because there are four wills that you're gonna see in this verse. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So you see, there's four wills in there. And that means that these things will absolutely take place in the future. They will happen. And all of this is what leads us to this idea of why it's so important for us to to have a prophetic worldview. Because you see, knowing that these things are going to happen, we, we can't afford to get caught up in this world, the world that we're just passing through. You know, I think about Billy Graham passing on this week and how many things there were posted about him and how many times it was posted that Billy Graham would would say, look, I don't live here, I'm just passing through. He, along with Pastor Chuck Smith, both said, hey, you know, there's gonna be rumors that I'm dead. Don't believe it, I just changed the dress. I just moved. We can't afford to get caught up knowing what we know We can't afford to get caught up. Or we also can't afford to get too comfortable in our circumstance. And I think we can all be guilty of that. Even us believers who, who we know Jesus is coming back, but it's easy to get comfortable, isn't it? It's easy to just think that, okay, yeah, I know he's coming back, but I still have to deal with all this right now. And that's true, we do. But I think a prophetic worldview will help us to deal correctly with what we have to deal with. Now look, Peter's going to finish this letter by giving some real practical applications, and Pastor Michael will teach on that next time. But I just have some thoughts on why I think this is so important, what I think is important, and they're they're really my thoughts. You can take them or leave them if you want; I won't be offended. Um, but I think these are things that that I feel like God has spoken to me as I've looked at this particular passage and and really just been looking at the church in these past say, uh, five years or so, because I see a lot of things, and I spend a lot of time uh, looking at what's going on in the church, especially in America. I think one of the important things is having a prophetic worldview balances our Christian worldview. I think if, if we don't think about what God has promised concerning our future, sometimes it can skew how we look at the present. You know, especially when we start thinking about, and I don't know about you, but you know, I read a lot of the news, probably more than I should. And you know, to be honest, when you see the evil that goes on, I mean, every single day you you read these things and you just go, how could that happen? It's so horrible. And I think it's easy to get caught up in that. And I think we could really get depressed without a prophetic worldview, without understanding what will happen. You know, Sometimes Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet, you know, I relate to that, Um, and sometimes David felt this way. Jeremiah 12, one says, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? You ever felt that way? Looking at what's going on? Sure, but look, if we know the end of godless men, we just read what the end of godless men is. We don't have to worry that evil's gonna prevail. It's not going to. So I think it balances out our Christian worldview. The second thing I think is that though we might disagree on the timing of certain events, you know, and especially the rapture, I don't know why we get so worked up about this. Look, Um, I I freely admit to you, I have a different position than Pastor Michael does. We have a lot of fun discussing it. He's always trying to convince me. I'm always trying to convince him. I don't think it'll happen. Neither one of us is going to budge on this. But it's okay. It's okay. Those things are not so important. But there are certain things concerning correct um, interpretation of prophecy that really are. And I think the, the, the first one is we need to have a sure knowledge that Jesus will return just as he said he would. Even if we disagree on timing, we must agree that Jesus will return. Do you realize there are people who call themselves Christians walking around today that don't think Jesus is gonna return? They think this is it. This is the kingdom. Wow. God, I, I feel gypped if this is it. This is not what I read about. But there are people who who believe that, who see it that way. We have a sure knowledge that Jesus is gonna return because he said he would. And that sure knowledge should bring us hope every day of our life. Every time that you can get really down on something, remember one of two things. Either you're gonna go be with Jesus because of your mortality, or he's gonna come and take you to be with him. John 14, two and three. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Another one of those wills. I will come again and receive you to myself. He's gonna come again. He's gonna receive us to him, the bride of Christ, and that where I am, there you may be also. Wherever Jesus is from that point, you're gonna be with him. Wow, that gives me hope. And in fact, more than hope, that gets me excited. Doesn't that get you excited? I mean, think about it. Just the possibility that Jesus might come before I face my own mortality gets me excited. I'm like, yeah, I might not have to go through all that. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be involved in the process. That doesn't sound fun to me. So the thought that Jesus might come tonight, in fact, even before I'm done here, and you guys probably be happy about that too, that gets me excited. Now look, I know it might not happen, but you know what? It might. It might happen. So three, knowing that the return of Jesus could come at any moment, Encourages us to be about his business now look it's true that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, but I think most of us walking around don't expect that we're going to just die tomorrow or tonight. Most of us go to bed at night thinking we're going to get up in the morning. Amen, I hope so. Maybe there's some times where we go to bed and all think that it's been a rough day or we're going through something, but most of the time we go to bed and you know, we're singing the Annie song this sun We'll come up tomorrow. Or at least I'll get up tomorrow, one or the other. I don't think we really think that much about that. Maybe we should more, I don't know. And especially those of you who are younger. You know, when you're younger, there's no way you think that way. That's why you do all the stupid things you do. And all the stupid things I did. I could go there, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I could think of a few right offhand. But you know, we don't expect that. But the knowledge and the expectation that Jesus could return at any moment, I think it gives us a sense of urgency that we might not have otherwise. And maybe we should, but I'm not sure we always do. But that thought, if we keep that prophetic worldview, that thought in our mind each day when we get up, today could be the day, wow, that's gonna make us think and act a little bit differently. And I think Peter reminds us of this because we may not stand with the scoffers on this issue, but you know what? We can ignore it. We can get up today and not even think about it. And I think not thinking about it, we may not do the things, all the things that God wants us to do. When we have this sense of urgency that He could be back. It causes us to say, okay, I'm not gonna wait any longer. I'm gonna go ahead and do this. God's called me to do it. I'm gonna do it. I know there was a point in time when I was still working at Garden Grove High School and working here part-time. And I remember going and talking to Pastor Michael about my desire to be on full-time. And I'll be honest with you, what I said to him was, I just don't feel like what I'm doing here anymore is as valuable as that once was, and I don't wanna waste another minute. I don't wanna waste another minute of my life. And part of that's my age. Part of that's my age. You you get to be my age, you start realizing that, you know, in all likelihood, you're not gonna have as many days ahead as you do behind. You you guys, young guys, you don't get this. You'll get there. I promise you. You know, right now you're like, ah, I got all the time in the world. But also because... I've lived in the expectancy most of my Christian life that the Lord was gonna return soon. And I'll be honest, I was just like some of those other guys and I, I get discouraged sometimes that it hasn't happened yet, you know. Um, but then I go back to what Peter is telling us here. Hey, it's only been a couple of days. It's only been a couple of days. So I think what it is is that we should live in the expectancy of the certain return of Christ without putting a timetable on it. Because I know that there's been a lot of false teachers and they put these timetables and they make us look stupid, don't they? They make all Christians who believe in the return of Christ look stupid and give more ammunition to the scoffers and the mockers. Well, first of all, it's not scriptural to make those predictions. Shame on them. Jesus specifically told us it's not for us to know the exact time or hour. And every time they make a prediction, I get mad. I want to call him up and go, don't do that because now he can't come on that day because you predicted it. Don't do that. But it is scriptural to know the seasons. In fact, Jesus spoke on it for an entire chapter in the Bible, Matthew 24. The entire chapter is devoted to telling us about what seasons look like so that we could be aware. Now, of course, he said this to his disciples in Matthew twenty four thirty two and 33, he said, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, all these things he's been talking about, recognize that he is near right at the door. So he's saying, be aware, have a prophetic worldview. Know what's going on. Recognize the seasons. Don't worry about the exact time or day. Just know what's going on and see the seasons just like you know what happens and what season it is when the fig tree is prepared. That way those men could live their lives knowing what was most important. They could fulfill the calling that Jesus had given them and for none of them was it an easy calling, was it? But they knew they were doing what Jesus had called them to do, that they were gonna go out, they were gonna preach the good news that the Messiah had come and that he had given himself up for mankind. And in that good news, they preached that he would be coming again. But you know what? I think that he spoke those words more for our sake than even for theirs. Because he didn't come back in their lifetime and we're still waiting. And we need to pay attention to what's going on in the world. And I would say this to you. We need to pay attention to what's going on in the world and especially, especially in the Middle East and most especially where? In Israel, that's right. Most especially in Israel. And despite what some people's interpretation of prophecy may be, I promise you this, God is not done with Israel. I promise you that. I'm always befuddled by people who try to say, well, the church, or even more foolishly, America has replaced Israel in God's plan. Look, just unbiased observation would have to lead you to think differently. Even if you really knew not much of anything, you have to look at a couple of facts. What other nation or people group has been totally dispersed, kept their identity for 2,000 years, and then brought back into their homeland? The answer is, of course, none. No other people group has ever had that happen, and none ever will. They're the only ones in history. So just that unbiased observation would say, there must be something special about this this nation and this people. And in fact, they've done all that while being the most persecuted people group in the history of the world. Just unbiased observation would have to tell you there's something special going on there. And in point of fact, as the British like to say, one of the main purposes of the tribulation period is to bring Israel back into that relationship with God. Psalm 89, 36, and 7 says, His descendants shall endure forever and His throne as the sun before me, and it shall be established, this is twice, forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Forever. You see, God said to Abraham, right before he became Abraham, he was still Abram, way back in Genesis 12, that he would bless those that bless him and curse those who curse him. And he was referring to him as the father of the nation of Israel. That's not changed. And this is another reason we need to be able to correctly interpret the prophetic scriptures so that we know what to do when it comes to Israel. We need to understand how to relate to Israel. Israel. And we certainly don't wanna be the people that curses Israel because God has made a promise that's forever. Now look, I wanna be real clear here. I don't want you to be like a lot of the people were back in the early 70s when prophecy was really a big thing and people were really getting into you know, what's gonna happen. And I even had some friends that did this back in the early 70s. They thought for sure the rapture was gonna come at any minute and, and they sold their house and they moved out into some rural place to get, it's like to get ready for the rapture. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why would you do that? Okay, if you're a survivalist, and if you don't think you're going, maybe you should go do that. And then you're going to get left behind. But if you know you're going, why? What? God can pick you up quicker there? What's the deal? And in fact... If you really believe that, wouldn't you rather be in a place where there are millions of people that you could have the biggest impact on in sharing the gospel? You see, it was just, it was silliness. And again, they had a prophetic worldview, but not the proper one. So just in closing tonight, I hope that you have been stirred up to remembrance in your sincere heart, that it's important as part of our Christian worldview not to ignore the prophecy of scripture, that it's important that we are always looking forward to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in so doing, in our worldview, we we can rightly divide not only the word of truth, but rightly divide what we see and what we hear is going on in this world and we can compare it to scripture and go, I get this. Now, we're not gonna get everything. You know, there is a point in time when everybody is absolutely sure the European, you know, 10 Federation nation was it. We're done, we're out of here. Didn't happen. It's gone five to 10 to 12, back to eight, back, you know. Who knows? With the rise of Islam fitting into here, this is something nobody talked about in the 70s. We had no idea that this could happen. So we have lots of things that we could look at, and we can say, I don't totally get it, but I do get one thing. The nations are gathering. All we have to do is read a newspaper once a day, and we know that the nations are gathering and plotting and planning against Israel, amen? We need to pay attention. We need to be stirred. We need to have a sense of urgency about going about God's business, so as uh, Rachel comes up here to lead us in a closing song, why don't you just bow with me and we'll have a word of prayer. So Heavenly Father, just thank you for your word. Thank you for, for Peter sharing that with us, Lord. Um, and it's interesting to note that there are already scoffers and marker, mockers that soon. And Lord, that they continue until today. And I, I do pray, Lord, that you have stirred up our hearts tonight. And that we'll, we will be reminded that we need to have a prophetic worldview, that we need to not ignore what you have to say about what's happening. And Lord, that we, it helps us to understand that we are just passing through this world. And we're to do the best that we can with what you've given us to share the gospel, to, to um, love people around us, Lord, um, to represent you in every single way to the best that, of our ability, the ability that you give us by the power of your spirit, God. We... We wanna do that. And so stir up our thoughts and our, our ways tonight, Lord. Bring us into a place where really our first priority is to spend time with you and then to serve you. And Lord, if there's anyone that came tonight, they're a little confused and, and uh, maybe they've never come into relationship with you yet, maybe they've even been a scoffer and a mocker, I just pray you'd speak to their heart tonight. And if that's you tonight, I pray that you'd open your heart to Jesus and you can do it with simple words, something like this, Jesus, I recognize now that you did come and that you gave yourself, gave your life for me to save me from my sin. And I realize that you will come again. And I wanna be, I wanna be in that number, as the song says, when you do come again. And so tonight... Lord, I want to ask you into my life. I want to receive you as Lord and Savior. And if you've said those words tonight, that's that's all it takes if that's the sincere desire of your heart. So God, I ask that you'd bless anyone who made that decision tonight or anyone who's making a decision to just draw closer and closer to you because they now see that there is a sense of urgency. So God, we thank you again for this time tonight. We ask, Lord, that um, anything that you wanna teach us out of what we have studied tonight, Lord, that you will just seal it in our hearts. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name.